Hello. There we go. Sometimes the clip and the cable don't quite all work together. Welcome to E3 Church. My name is Pastor Scott. I'm so gracious to sing with you this morning and just praying for all of our worship team who are feeling ill and just hope you're online with us and just welcome. And for those inside, I wanted to point out that we heard a loud amen that you might not have heard from my two middle schoolers who don't have to sit in here any longer. So thank you to Dan and for their middle school ministry. I have to listen to him again, they think, you know. Uh, we're excited for you to be joining us and excited to start off a new sermon series on We Are the Outsiders, which was our walk-in song, our, our, our opening song. And we're going to get into the book of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. One quick outside of the sermon detail that I want to tell our at-home listeners is that we are doing communion at the end of the service today. And so make sure you have something handy. It doesn't have to be bread and wine. It can be whatever elements you have handy because that is the power of the Holy Spirit that works through those in bringing Christ in you. So make sure you have those handy. Also to our online community, I have a question for you. And it's this. We put all that on the screen. What is your favorite Facebook or online optical illusion? Y'all remember, it was several years ago where they had like, it was a shirt or a shoe, I can't even remember, and it was blue, and then some people saw it was green, and it was, yes, it, 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 everybody was so upset about this, was it blue or green? Chat that in. I want to hear what your favorite ones you've come across are on online illusions, because we have some awesome ones that have come through the social media sphere, in-house and online. I'm going to have us work a little bit on stretching our brains this morning. We're going to do some optical illusions. Now... I'm not going to pre-tell you what to look for. I want you to shout out what you see right away when you see the screen. And I'm sorry for those over here. You've got to really reach over here if you need to. Ready, set, image. Well, okay, duck and bird are fine. Oh, there it was. I heard it. I heard it. Okay. How many of you can see the duck and the bird? Raise your hand. How many see the rabbit right away? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that fascinating how you, you have to kind of reorient and rethink how your brain is working? Now, remember this one, okay, just, just for a minute here. Let's go to the next one. I love this one so much. Okay. You see the woman? You see the young woman first. Does anybody see the old woman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did a big study about this at some prestigious university called Harvard. Maybe you've heard it or not. And at Harvard, they said that it's based on your actual age that you'll see either the young woman or the old woman first. Now, I'm not saying anything about anybody in the room. I could only see the old woman first. <laughs> it took me a long time to see the young woman. It's interesting. We need to reorient and rethink with our brains and our eyes. Our brains are wired to make sense of what we see. And some of you are so frustrated right now because you cannot see one of the other women. I can see it on your faces like, what's going on? I only see one person. But our brains are so focused on making sense of what we see. Now, this one will really mess with some of us here, okay? Some of us will, will, will not be able to function the rest of the day. I'm just warning you. Go to the next slide. Well, it's not going to work, is it? It's okay. We, we had troubles with this slide. Now, there's a slide, and I'll just try to illustrate it. It is an elephant, and there are four legs to an elephant, yes? But when you look more closely, Google it when you get home, there are five legs there, and it blows my mind, and I've not been able to sleep for several nights after finding this image because it's an optical illusion when your brain is trying to make sense of something that seems impossible. Now, What's interesting, and they're doing studies about this, is when you see one of these optical illusions and your brain learns and it gets that neural pathway to fire up and say, hey, this is how you're supposed to see this image. We find that on these images, 
that, that there's a, a trick that your brain now will only see the first thing you saw for the rabbit or the duck bird, okay? Keep that in mind. Don't, don't, don't know if I'm gonna put up that back up on the screen here, but reorient yourself and think through as you look at the screen, shout out what you see. How many of you saw the same thing you first saw the first time? Yeah. How many of you saw the different thing for the first time? Whoa, okay. Some elasticity in some of our brains. That's good. You should feel good about yourself if you saw something different the first time. What we're finding is we have to be reoriented in how we view and how we interact with the world around us. This exercise makes sense when our brains misremember things that we think are true and need to get us back on track. For example, I'm always amazed at the people who assume that we've been told that Jesus said that for whatever reason, I don't know where they picked this up, is, is, a, is that the Lord never gives you more than you can't handle. That's actually not in the Bible. In Corinthians, Paul writes, I'll never tempt you more than you can bear. But for some reason, our whole nar- narrative as Christians in America, we kind of spin this into this idea that God only gives us more than we can't handle. That's not true. The world often gives us more than we can handle. That's why we have the church that's why we need a savior who will save us, right? The interesting thing is, is we need to reorient our brains here as we enter into Mark, both about what we assume about Jesus and assume what Jesus said and did and how Jesus interacted with so many different persons in his ministry. But secondly, we also have to understand that it reorients the gospels for us in ourselves. That the gospels as a four book unit come in in very interesting ways in how we can make sense of them. Jesus' ministry was just not a simple retelling of what he did. Unfortunately, we do not have a YouTube video of Jesus' life that goes step-by-step, moment-by-moment. Wouldn't that be convenient for us in this day and age? And to understand the context of what he did? In fact, we have four different eyewitnesses, four different versions of what they saw to his life, and they've all retold it completely differently. For those who like statistics and who are a little bit nerdy, like me, we find that in the book of Mark is in 97% of Matthew. Keep that for mind. The book of Mark is in 88% of Luke. However, only 60% of Matthew is in Mark, and only 47% of Luke is in Mark. Now, those of you know, there's one more gospel out there. It's a gospel of what? And John is just weird, Okay. <laughs> John, John is just totally the outsider. He's the guy who sees something completely different. And what you find is when you see things from different perspectives, different vantages points, it will transform how you view and how you interact with your world. For example, how many of you have ever been in a car accident before? It is completely different to enter into a car accident as a driver versus a passenger, yes? It is completely different to witness a car accident and not actually be in the car accident, Yes? And it's also completely different for those who are amazing in law enforcement and keep us all safe and paramedics and firemen is completely different in that role. Yes? Yes. It is so fascinating that we think that Jesus's life should be just plotted out for us exactly in four exact same manuscripts and they should all say the exact same thing. That's just not going to happen. See, Matthew, I believe, was a group of disciples who followed Matthew's teaching and Matthew used Mark because he knew about it and he added in some extra material. Luke, who was a doctor and historian, took Matthew's gospel and probably added in a lot of eyewitness material that Mark just couldn't have. And like I said before, John just adds completely new information, but he also has the feeding of the 5,000 and, of course, the crucifixion. So we see that it is biblical. It follows the rule of faith. 
in all four of these gospels to some level or another. Story elements are missing. Timeline is often confusing and missing. And important story elements are missing as well. We see in Mark that almost the entirety of his book is written is in the next moment, the next day, the next moment, the next day. And when you add up the days, it just doesn't make sense for three years of Jesus' ministry. Mark, who was a person following Peter, likely just took eyewitness material and added to it. So with that in mind, who is Mark? Who is Mark? He's an early disciple of Jesus, not one of the 12, but he became friends with Peter and likely wrote down many of Peter's own eyewitness material. His actual name is John Mark. He's a son of a well-to-do lady from Jerusalem whose name was Mary and her house was a rallying point and a meeting place for the early church, if you find in Acts 12.12. Mark was a nephew of Barnabas. And Paul does not like Mark at one point because Mark abandoned them in their work in the book of Acts. And so Barnabas, during their journey, takes John Mark and Paul abandons both of them and goes on his own way. But we see that in Colossians 4.10, Paul writes, get Mark and bring him back with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Mark is a friend of Simon Peter and became a scribe who wrote down many of Peter's teachings. Remember, these disciples were adamant that Jesus was returning very soon. They are not in the business to write a bestseller. I, I, I assume none of them got any sort of royalties off of writing the Gospels. And we have to remember that many of them were unlearned and mildly illiterate fishermen. Mark wrote down these sayings without much attention to the exact order of details and missing many other details that the other three Gospels fill in. However, we'll find that in the book of Mark, it is the essentials of the Christian faith that are so boldly proclaimed. Mark is likely written, when and where Mark is written, is likely written around 50 to 60 AD, but up until 70 AD, where the temple was destroyed and everyone was such a tumultuous event that they likely would have incorporated that somehow in the writing. Jesus was crucified and resurrected around 30. So we have around 30 years for these details to actually be put into writing, give or take a decade. Literacy was so very rare. And likely this gospel was given to one person who could read and would be read aloud to a people straight through who were gathered as church in the early centuries. They needed to know who Jesus was because they're their very first generation handing off to the next generation. And so that is why we have these four gospels. Lastly, what type of literature is Mark? Mark is not a biography. It is literal, its literary genre is gospel. Now, many of us don't maybe dabble in gospel as a, you know, a literary style. We do romance, we do action, we do mystery. But gospel is by itself unique. Mark is not obsessed with neat timelines, exact details, or proper grammar. Mark is obsessed with communicating the spiritual truth found in Jesus that all who believe in Jesus will be saved for eternity. This is so countercultural to Roman mythology, who believed that there was lots of gods and you needed lots of sacrifice to appeal all these gods. But secondly, it's countercultural even with Jewish faith, where you need sacrifice even to the one true God. See, Mark reorients every reader into this new truth, the gospel, on how to be saved. So, it's not a biography. It is gospel, and it's preaching materials designed to tell the story of God's saving action in life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. We even see the verse 1 of Mark's gospel that he writes, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. With that in mind, let's jump into chapter 1. Appreciate Rex reading that so well this morning. And we're going to go verse by verse and understand the context of what Mark's trying to convey both to the ancient reader 
and how it can apply to our lives here today as well. Just for context, there is no birth sequence in Mark. Mark does not believe in Christmas. He doesn't. We don't have any details about a virgin birth or even some theological treatise like John brings up in chapter one of John. No, <coughs> pardon me. Just need to reorient there for a moment. <clears throat> we go from brief stories about John's, the, the, John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus into the temptation of Jesus and then right into Jesus calling the very first disciples. And now all of a sudden we jump into chapter one, verse 21, where we see that Jesus is starting to do the actual ministry that he's called to do. Let's pick up right there and read on the screens here. They went to Capernaum. When the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Now, synagogue for ancient times and contemporary times in some ways was a local congregation or building where people met. And Capernaum was the home of the apostle Peter and the base of operations for much of Jesus' ministry, especially in the book of Mark. Jesus, like Paul, used this idea of a freedom of a synagogue where literally anybody could come in and start preaching. Now, I'm saying that. That's, that's ancient days. Please, no one start coming up and preach. Okay? But it is the idea that anybody could come in and just start preaching and teaching. And what we see in the very first verses in the Gospel of Mark is that the people understand that Jesus is doing this at another level than that they've ever heard before. We've all been in those situations where you see someone who does an art form, someone who does something, and they just do it so exceptionally better than you've ever heard or witnessed done before that you just can't help but be drawn into them. We see that the verb for amazed in Greek is exoplacento, which means a very strong meaning, a very strong teaching that hits it's so far in terms of Greek. It is so much better in terms of a verb of what Jesus' teaching is that they can't help but be drawn in by it. And of course, in Mark's writing style, we see immediately the next event happens, verse 23. Just a man, this then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The verb suddenly, again, is that writing style that Mark employs, where it's not over the next course of an hour or two hours. It seems like Jesus is preaching, and in the middle of the sermon, all of a sudden, somebody stands up and starts screaming at him. Again, please don't do that. This idea of suddenly and shockingly brings this ancient idea that if you knew an identity of someone and you said their identity as clear as they were who they were, you could then control the person. It would be like somebody shouting out to me, Scott Martin, but actually my legal name is James Scott Martin Jr. I know, your minds are blown right now. And if you said James Scott Martin Jr., you could then control me like a marionette, like a puppet. This ancient idea was so common that we see that Mark uses it, the writers believe, to show that the demon was trying to control Jesus. But look at the response. Verse 25, be quiet, Jesus said sternly. I love it when Jesus is stern. I love it when he just shouts or cries or weeps. He shows us human emotions. He says, be quiet, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. See, friends, Jesus did not need a magical formula or any sort of exorcism right. He didn't need any sort of props. After ordering, the spirit convulsed and came out with a shriek. This also illustrates another pattern in Mark, that Jesus' identity 
His true identity does not want to be known by those who follow him. More on that in a moment. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the entire region of Galilee. And now here's the effect. It's still the Sabbath, a day where you're not supposed to do any work. And the next section of text is illuminating on what Mark's trying to convey and also the response from the common people at that time. Verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and what? No, no, no. You can't work on the Sabbath day. You can't wait on people. And so we see that Mark is very subtly just sliding that in there to the ancient readers saying, na, 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 boo, boo, Sabbath doesn't matter anymore. Verse 32. That evening after sunset when the Sabbath was over, people brought to Jesus all, all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. There's nothing more intoxicating than a good mob. Amen? We, we love the mob mentality. Some of you had mob mentality yesterday in the evening, and I won't talk about it. Don't worry. I love you all. I'm praying for you. I've been there too. But the idea of, of a mob can be so intoxicating. It, it brings forth the best of people and the worst of people, right? Right? And we know bad mobs. I was privileged to head to Uganda years ago, and we had a layover in a place called Cairo, Egypt. And it just so happened that we had the layover during the Arab Spring, and so we were able to come through the city with, I've never felt more protected, honestly, but we watched a literal civil war going on as we drove by it. It was remarkable. And these people shouting all sorts of things, we didn't know what they are saying. But, but we knew that we were in this van and we were okay and we, should, we were driving from airport to the pyramids so we could see the pyramids and then say we did that and then head back to the airport. And this whole uprising of mob mentality was amazing to watch. And we see the same idea here of people following Jesus. It's interesting that Peter, likely the eyewitness to these miracles with his mother-in-law, tells Mark to maybe write this down. And we see also, it's interesting, how then the crowds of people, the entire town, flood to this one person's house. Can you imagine one person's house in Tallahassee having the entire city come upon it? It would be remarkable, right? But it shows the power and the grace and the majesty of Jesus Christ. But the crowds came to him because they wanted something, not because they wanted to be reoriented. There's a phrase, it goes like this, if a man can make a better mousetrap, then his neighbors and the public will surely beat a path to his house, even if they live in the middle of a wood. We see that Jesus muzzles the demons who come out. Luke is more specific in his gospel in chapter 441. He says, because they knew he was the Christ. This reluctance by Jesus to have the demons reveal him as a Messiah is best explained by Jesus' desires to show by word and deed what kind of Messiah who's going to be, and not by mob mentality. And yet, we see that Jesus still heals. Remarkable. I come to Jesus with my own false desires, my own selfish wants, and he still gives them to me, even though 
He really wants to see me transformed and for me to not ask the things that are selfish and not good for my entire life. They realize that Jesus is different, that he brings something unique, something powerful that the other teachers, the other miracle workers do not in that day and age. Yet they do not see the true gift that Jesus brings. See, friends, the point is this. Jesus reorients us. Jesus brings what we see as a duck or a bird or a rabbit, and he transforms it into something that we can never even begin to imagine to see. Do you remember back years ago, they did those old magic eyes where you stared at a bunch of dots and I couldn't, but people swore they saw things popping out at the, at the, screen, at the magic dots of them. Some of you don't remember that and that's okay. But this idea of something popping out at you that you cannot see even though it's right in front of you. Some of us might turn to our spouse or a loved one and say, hey, I, I saw you for several years until I actually saw you. And then things completely changed. Some of us have that moment where we see that in our kids, in our nieces and nephews, in people we work with, where we see them, but we actually don't actually ever really see them. The power of Jesus is that he reorients me expecting him to be a genie where I press A1 on his vending machine, wanting a car or a house or job security or a 401k or you name it. And instead, Jesus brings me into a relationship in the kingdom of God. See, he reorients us from being strangers, from being sinners, from being sick, from being the outsiders, to being known being cleansed, to being healed, and to be insiders. We remember those images from the start of the sermon. How awesome would it be to go back to those now and see a third or fourth or fifth thing? I couldn't find one when I Googled it. But in all honesty and in all seriousness, how amazing would it be if today, even right here in the sermon, you could reorient the relationship we have to Jesus Christ into one who doesn't give you what you want, but one who gives us what we need. By his work and through the gospel, he will show us his true identity, that we can behold the God who created, redeemed, and restoring us and bringing us inside his father's house. Jesus does this in so many profound and amazing ways. And we have the privilege and honor of doing that here this morning. Jesus, at the end of his entire ministry, reorients us from a mentality and a theology of giving sacrifice over and over and over and over and over to somehow cleanse us. And instead, he sacrifices himself and sacrifices himself on, on our behalf. He makes us clean and reorients us in the gospel economy of saying, you bring nothing to the equation and I'll do it all for you. And when I do that for you, I also show you what you have to now do for your brother and sister. How you can be Christ and you can come into those relationships I may have just mentioned and serve and love and reorient a relationship you never knew was possible. We have the privilege of celebrating that sacrifice that Jesus gave so long ago. 
We're going to do that through Holy Communion. Communion is not meant to be some sort of empty rite where we go through emotion because somebody at the front of a stage tells us to. No, it is literally, theologically, meant to ask for Jesus to come inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that we're literally eating body and blood, but I know it's more than just a trivial or a trite symbol. See, friends, communion is asking the Lord to come inside of us through a common experience. Jesus doesn't pick abstract and obscure things to even represent himself. He picks the most common elements of that day. and At the end of the meal, he uses those to show us what it means to be in relationship and be transformed from the inside out through him. He used bread. And the Passover meal is common to use bread as a symbol to end the meal with the last bit. And he takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. He shared this meal with every one of those he saw as disciples and even one who would betray him. And he looked across the room and said, you are all receiving this, not as something you earned, but as something you are. Reorienting them in the cosmic relationship of God's love. Similarly, when the meal was over, they passed the cup around and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this as often as you do it, remembrance of me. In a moment, we'll ask you to come up during this song that Julie May and Charlie will sing. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. We invite you to take from one of the front trays Try the best to maintain social distancing, of course, but to take and come back to your seat and hold them. Hold the elements, and we'll take them all together at the end of the service. Over here on the left, we have gluten-free for those who are desiring of that on the blue table. Over here, these are not gluten-free options as we come in and accept communion into ourselves right now. I'd like to pray over this experience and bless the elements before we come up and receive them and then take them all together at the end of the service. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have that by your grace and by your power and by your majesty, by all things that you do, Lord, we have a relationship with you that goes beyond what is seen. No, Lord, you reorient us into seeing something bigger, something larger, something more grandeur than we can ever possibly imagine, and that is everlasting life with you. And it is only by everlasting life with you can we find meaning and identity in this life here right now. And so, Lord, I pray over this bread. I pray over this cup that you would bless these elements that through a supernatural experience by the power of your Holy Spirit, they would infuse in us your DNA, your personhood, your reorienting power. And that by that, we would find a relationship with you that we can never have on our own, never understand on our own, as by these elements, we find new wine, new life, new hope, and you, Lord, coming into all that we are in bold, fresh, and exciting ways. Lord, I pray your blessing over these elements we're about to receive. May they bless those that take them. We ask this in your heavenly name. Amen.